everybody, welcome to episode 80 of Literary Disco, The Empathy Exams. This episode, we will begin with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I are forced to pick a book at random from our bookshelf and defend our ownership of it. And then we will discuss Leslie Jameson's 2014 essay collection, The Empathy Exams. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hey, everybody. What's so up? We've been we've been away for a little bit. We we haven't seen each other. We haven't talked to you people in Podcastville, which is the dumbest word I've come up with, and I've come up with a lot of dumb words lately. But we've been away. We've been on vacation. We're sorry we didn't tell you guys ahead of time. I know it's weird. We just asked you to watch our plants and feed our dog, but we're back. Yeah, we're back. and our vacations look kind of a lot like us working really hard at other literary projects so yeah it's not like yeah. it won't have benefits down the line to you guys right yeah it's, it's for sure going to be a benefit and, and in the meantime we were all in the same state the but the three of, of us did not all see each other at one yeah. time that's sad yeah it, is it sad. was guys i tried so hard i tried so it hard. was it was my fault it was my fault yeah. it was todd's yeah, fault it's, it's todd's fault it, it, it literally was my fault. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the few we times were where I a two-hour drive of each other. All three of us. Within a drive. Right. I, I mean, was I, at Ryder's house for most of the time. Well, and I did spend time with Julia. So you basically, did. I I didn't want to see Ryder. Is the thing. There's a terrible. Just, there's a dark feud going on behind right. the scenes. Yeah. Well. Uh, well, I had That's a great time see seeing now. both of you guys. Um, I have a, I got, Julia, I have to tell you a funny funny story about when you were staying with me. Okay, so Julia and her husband, Craig, uh, stayed with me. And while they were here, I was booking a reservation for an escape room, which I don't know if anybody, <gasps> everybody knows what an escape room is. But it's a, it's a, it's a service, uh, a, an entertainment experience that you have where you pay somebody to lock you and your friends in a room with a bunch of puzzles that you have to solve in order to get out. And what? I've... Oh, it's the funnest thing ever. What? So I have a group of friends that we've started doing this because they've sprung well, up all on, over Los Is Angeles. there a bathroom in this room? What? No. Get the idea is the, the idea is that you have a certain amount of time. Like the first one I did was an hour. The one I did uh -huh. last night was 45 minutes. And, and they're usually themed. Like the first one I did was a bank robbery theme where you have to break into a vault. So it wasn't really an escape. You were, you were trying to break into a vault with these diamonds in it. Like you had to have a, these fake diamonds. So it's basically somebody builds a set, like a fake room, and they leave clues and props behind. And you have to either solve a murder, break into a bank, or fig figure out your way out of this room. It's, it's based on a lot of um, like online games like, or uh, video games is where it started. And then they decided to make it a real life thing. So it's, it's really about team building, like you and a group of friends communicating with each other and trying to solve puzzles. So like there'll be a typewriter and it'll have a message typed out on the, you know, on the page. And you have to decode that in conjunction with the pictures that are on the wall, which gives you a three color code, which corresponds to numbers based on, you know, the things you find in the drawer, which gives you a three combination code to open up a lock, which then gives you a key, you know, so it's like this series of puzzles. It's, they're really fun. But while Julia was here, I, I, this group of friends, we had done one and we decided we're going to start doing as many of these as we can because it was so much fun. And we had won the first one we did. So we were like, we're on a roll. We got to keep this going. So I was booking 
the reservation to do the one I did last night. And for some reason, it asked for the full names of everybody that was on the reservation. And oh, I didn't know, I that, you know, <laughs> I didn't know who to add to our, because there were a couple people, you know, we were going to invite more people because it was our group was expanding. So I knew that people were going <laughs> to invite their friends. So I needed names to put, it wouldn't let me book it without giving full names. So I put Julia's name and her husband Greg's, and then we made up some names. Well... It turns out that the one that we were doing was this horror-themed one, like a Saw-based one, <gasps> where you were, like, locked in a basement. And and so, you know, you're locked in this basement, and there's a serial killer, and you got to get out solving all of his puzzles before you get gassed. It's, it, it's actually, it was really creative and fun and super, super creepy. Uh, and very different than the other escape room I had done, because the other one was just, like, you know, it was all about the puzzles and communicating. This one was about getting over your fear like once you open a door and then it's a dark hallway and you don't have a flashlight and you can hear someone breathing terrifying so and body parts everywhere like fake but it was it's so scary and like no one would walk in certain areas and so those of us who were brave enough to do it had to keep it was an interesting you know team building thing anyway part of the the game was at one oh point my God. people start pulling out photos and they're like ripped up photos and somebody's like writer is that you and i guess the point of giving the full name was that they can pull your facebook photos and oh god and oh plant god. them in here so it's supposed to be part of the game that you get freaked out by finding photos of yourself <laughs> of course i had given fake names for half of the people so there i was looking at pictures of julia and greg in the middle of my like horror basement experience i was like oh that would make sense but i couldn't explain it to anybody we only had 45 minutes to so everyone's like why are there pictures of all these other people and Ryder, why are you here i'm like never mind just keep going just it's, i'll explain later but then we had made up names so i'm sure that you know like i remember julia and julia suggested i name somebody based on the wine that was on my table which i you know it was like do you remember this? It was like the name, it was the brand name of the wine and then the type of wine. So it was like, you know, Joseph's Chianti or something. So I just yeah, named yeah. Maiden Joseph Chianti. So I probably, one of these photos that was on the, you know, part of this game was probably of some stranger named Joseph Chianti. Um, oh my God. Anyway, it, it was hysterical. So, so I just had to tell you that, Julie, because we had this whole conversation. Like, why is it asking for names? That's the dumbest thing ever. Why do you need a full name? So I figured where, out why. So where do they do this? Is it like... Oh, this was this one was in the. No, I mean, you can do it here too. They do it all over. Yeah, they're popping up. I mean, there's like 20 of these in LA, and they're so fun. And and the companies that do them keep changing them, so they keep opening different variations. Um, But the the this one was like way deep in the valley in Silmar, which is like, and it's literally (laughs) next door to an adult superstore. (laughs) So it's like. And it's, it's very weird. Adventure it was a very room. weird experience to drive Ooh. into the middle of like this warehouse remember, district. Or did you guys ever go to uh, Tony and Tina's wedding? No. no, it's like dinner theater, right? It's it's that fake wedding, and yeah, it, and you're part of it, and you know, it's the whole thing. I go I remember, to so I, many weddings that are already shit shows. Why would I pay <laughs> to do that? But this is the sort of thing that, like, I did when I was twenty. Like, where you couldn't you couldn't go to a bar because you weren't twenty one yet. You couldn't really do anything cool, so your choices were Cirque du Soleil or Tony and Tina's wedding or um, the Magic Castle. If you get tickets, all the Magic Castle is fucking awesome. Um, all these weird little things to, to, to work around not being able to go to a bar and get drunk with the person you're on a date with. Well, I feel like these escape rooms are a symptom of 
there's definitely a rise in like the simulated real experience yeah i feel like there's a lot more of that you know the disney like it's it's the generations of of people that grew up with disney and we just really you know and ren fairs and like i don't know i feel like the, the escape room thing is part of a greater movement because i know that there is a real life version of the game the the movie the game like there mm-hmm. is there are companies that are offering things like that. I did a, a theater thing in New York a couple years ago called what was it called? Um, Sleep No More. No, but I've heard I've heard of that. No, Sleep No More is is supposed to be incredible. No, I'm thinking uh, it was something where we walked around the streets of New York and we were solving a mystery while actors were interacting with us, but we were also in public, like with strangers. And I'm doing something next week for a friend's birthday that's kind of like the Amazing Race in L.A. Like. There's just, there's been a rise of these sort of simulated, you know, puzzle. I guess it's like the experience last night was really interesting because, you know, you're terrified, you're screaming and laughing. Um, so it's just more, oh, and then I did an inner, I did a haunted house last year where they, it's called alone, where they literally send you through by yourself with a flashlight and people jump out at you and grab you and throw you into coffins and. Oh, fuck that. Yeah, it, it was so, fuck it was that. so not worth it, by the way. It was like 35 minutes of basically people molesting you it was not fun um yeah if i that like i don't i don't need to have more anxiety in my life like i i don't want some 17 year old carney throwing me into a uh into a coffin and then being like right. everyone on a smoke break i'll right. uh well there's <laughs> back there's, like, 40. there's multiple levels of discomfort like you know last night there's a point where you walk into um, i was leading the way into a pitch black room and feeling my way around i feel a toilet i feel a sink and then mm. suddenly somebody screams at me and they are chained up in this room no and fuck. part of the puzzle is you have to unlock this chained up blood covered woman it's so no but you know but part of it is like on one hand i'm like terrified that there's a person suddenly there where i didn't think there was a person so i'm screaming because i'm the shock of that then i'm laughing but then i have to go back and interact with this person and i'm thinking well this is an actor crouched here tied up and they've been quiet for 15 minutes until we found them this is just weird and i want right. to sort of be like hey i know we're just acting can i just get the information i need from you or wh- what am i supposed to do here so i want to like so there's the discomfort of you know the one level of discomfort of just the shock of finding somebody that you're like the game discomfort like oh in the game i'm supposed to feel uncomfortable with this but then there's the other level of just social interaction discomfort right. of like well you're just an actor and i'm a player and how do we how does this negotiation work like i just i'm always been uncomfortable with that stuff like i like the ren fair but i like the shows and walking around i don't need to like have people actually talking to me and i don't know i get so weirded out by that so you know it's sometimes when i'm staying in hotels and stuff um and people are nice to me in a hotel i just think you don't have to be nice to me i know you hate your job you i know right. you hate me but that that goes away quickly. <laughs> All right. Wow. Well, now that we've, if you guys feel thorough on discussing the social contract, uh, <laughs> we can go on to some books. <laughs> All right. What um, numbers no, do we have for, awesome. for bookshelf roulette let's let's hear the numbers that uh, Twitter has, okay has fed us. so we have all right we're gonna do bookshelf roulette we're gonna take some numbers we're gonna pick random books off our shelves um so our first number is gonna indicate which corner of the bookshelf uh we're be gonna start with and that first number is four with about 12 exclamation points after it so make sure you start enthusiastically on the bottom left of your shelf okay bottom then left, all right. i want you to count up uh, 
And this one is from Sarah. I want you to count up four shelves. And then finally, let's count over 12 books. That one's from Barry C. So oh, that's uh, Barry C is Chantal Corcoran's son. Oh, our Chantal. that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So what were the you numbers? You know again? all the Twitter. I know names. all of our Twitter followers. I've, I've had some free time recently where I've gone and looked through all of our 3,000 Twitter followers. You've not had free time. That's called procrastination time. That is, <laughs> yeah. that is time when you are desperately trying to find an excuse to not write. Yes. <laughs> all right. So true. our numbers are right. four, four. 12. All right, you All guys right, ready? Break team. I definitely cheated a little. <laughs> I cheated I, every single time. I know, you just I, pick whatever you want to talk about. But I, I, no, I cheated no. a little too. Do we all cheat? But I, I, yeah, I guess we have to because it reaches that point where it's like, oh, we've landed on that book before. Or... Well, no, I just I ha- I I have to choose which shelf because I've got so many shelves. That's I what I yeah. Them. That's where I cheat. It's like which which bookshelf do I? But also, the book that I first landed on when I counted for up was uh, Joan Didion's um, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which we've already talked about. I feel like enough, and then also it was yeah. a little too perfect for the for the empathy exam so that was like wait why don't i start at one as the shelf that's the bottom and then i got a whole nother another shelf you know which is basically three up instead of four so, up. so what'd you I get then what'd you get oh so i got another book which we probably don't need to talk about because we've talked about it before but we haven't really gone too in depth and i thought it would be a good opportunity for todd to talk about it because i know oh. i think i read this book because of todd um, oh, or maybe right before i met todd uh richard ford's rock springs which uh, it's is, a great book. Yeah, it's a collection of short stories that is amazing. Um, and uh, now that I've pulled it down from the shelf, I really want to reread it. I I take notes in the back of my books, and um, this one is so full of notes. Like, I really, really got into this book, obviously. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I might have read this because you assigned it to me, Todd. Yeah, I'm, I might have. I mean, I, I assigned a lot. It, that well, I, I signed it more like ten years ago than I do now because I think um, the stories that Ford was writing. So he wrote the short stories in Rock Springs um, in the 1970s and early 1980s, and the collection came out I think in '84 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, those stories in there sort of set the template for. Dirty Realism, an entire movement of short stories that overtook the United States uh, in the 1980s and was exemplified by Ford and Tobias Wolff and to, um, you know, a a lesser extent by some of the Tim O'Brien stuff that wasn't the things they carried. Um, And Raymond Carver, of course, and Carver was Ford's great mentor. Um, So there's there's a pretty clear lineage between them but the short story rock springs might be my favorite short story that i've ever read in my entire life um i absolutely love that one but then there's also communist which is a great short story and great falls which is a great short story and fireworks which is a great short story and i the book is not in front of me and i can list off the an empire but i can list off the nine stories that are in it from uh (laughs) from the top of my head um you know what's funny oh sorry go go ahead well, I was just going to say, it's interesting to me to, to, to look back on this book because I can't really, rem- I can't separate it from all the 
Richard Ford inspired short stories that I've read since. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, there's a lot of, and I, part, part of that is that I think a lot of our professors at Bennington, you know, the, the, the teachers that we were getting recommendations for what to read. Um, cause actually at Bennington, they let us kind of pick what we wanted to read. And a lot of the, the teachers there for me recommended a lot of the dirty realist stuff. Like, Right. Richard, you know, the Richard Ford inspired people, but they were never quite as good as this, this book. I, I'm, I'm certain. Um, but in my mind, they're all kind of one giant, you know, American West or maybe the Midwestern guy who just got out of jail driving his car. Like they're all kind of blended together. Right. And that makes me want to go back and reread Richard Ford because, and Carver too, because I feel like those two are kind of the best of the best of that type. And um, I want to get back to the, the purer stuff. Well, I think the thing with Ford, um, you know, he stopped, he's published a thousand books subsequently. Um, and, you know, he won the Pulitzer Prize, or he was up for the Pulitzer Prize this year for um, Let Me Be Frank With You, which was a collection of stories based on his character, Frank Bascom, who'd appeared in his three acclaimed novels, The Sports Writer, Independence Day, and uh, Lay of the Land. Um, but Ford stopped really writing about those kinds of characters. So he wrote about them in Rock Springs, this sort of dying vision of the American West short story, influenced an entire generation of writers and then stopped writing about that stuff. You know, he his stuff became much more um, focused on this Frank Bascom character over many years. Um, but, you know, those dirty realists, it's it's that lone wolf who comes into the town and he might be a good guy, he might be a bad guy, you don't really know. Uh, you know, th I think that's what always appealed to me about those stories is that um, there's sort of crime and there's sort of literary fiction and um, you don't, you can't really tell the difference between the two of them. Right. If you were, if you didn't know one was an Esquire and one was in, you know, a, a pulp magazine or something. Right. And I love them. I, I just feel like the, the moment sort of got saturated and especially based on the the, the generation that was teaching us <laughs> you know as, yeah. as, as the teach the, the generation of writers who we were learning from they had been so greatly you know embroiled or they had been influenced and then they were sort of practicing within this tradition and i'm i i think I, I, you know literature has moved on in so many different ways and um and so these these original sources are a little blurry for me. Um, not you know, but I don't want to diminish Richard Ford because obviously he. But I, I guess basically it comes down to like his shadow looms. looms yeah, large, he, you know? he's he's pretty big still. But I think you know when when students are reading short fiction now in undergraduate and graduate classes, um, you know in the 1990s, which is when I started reading him when I was in college, and then when I gave him to you, probably you know ten years later, mm -hmm. um, it was an entirely different landscape. Now, you know, the kids that are in school, they're reading short stories by Kelly Link and Amy Bender, and right. it, it's a lot less um, white male. You know what totally. I mean? And I, and I think that's for for, for the better. You know, for sure. Um, but you know, he he altered the way that. Um, that that sort of fiction was written for many 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 years um and you know i went through a period where i i loved him and then i went through a period where i his new books i just couldn't get into um and then i read let me be frank with you um this past year and reviewed it for um the la review of books i wrote a really long piece on it and 
it was it was nice to get back into his his brain again um, to see how he works through stuff. He just you know he's a smart writer and um, he writes about people with big feelings and and the more I read, the less I want to read about people with big feelings. Um, or the last I want to read about people with no feelings doing nihilistic shit. I don't know. You know, I, 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 it turns out I, I read to feel some sort of empathy, as it turns out. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's what he does now, more than he used to. Yeah. Good pick. I support it. Yeah. Great. So Great what would you land on? Thanks. <laughs> well, in the similar vein, I landed on a book called Champagne and Baloney. Uh, by a writer named Tom Clark, which is um, <laughs> a uh, it's a 400-page book that was published in the 1970s, all about the Oakland A's baseball team, um, <laughs> an inside story of the rise and fall of the Oakland A's in the 1970s. Um, so I had not ever read this book, um, but as as the fans of the show know I like baseball and it's a sport that I appreciate. Um, but my friend Mark Haskell Smith, who's got a new book out uh, called Naked at Lunch, incidentally, um, where he we should read it and have him on the show now that I think about it. He uh, he's going around the world uh, nude and doing things and like taking nude cruises and hiking to the top of mountains. I feel nude. like he talked about that when he was on our show. Remember? Yeah, he, he, he was about yeah. to do that. I, yeah. I feel like he almost said it as a joke though. He wasn't serious about it yet. Uh, no, he episode, did it. But he, did it. Awesome. <laughs> he, he did it. It's a great book. Um, but at any rate, he had read this book many years ago, and he was like, you never read this? Oh, my God, you got to read this. And so uh, one day uh, in the mail, this book arrived from Mark Haskell Smith as a gift, and I read it, and it was great. So I like these. Um, this is this is sort of my guilty pleasure portion of my reading life, is I like reading sports biographies or, like, journalists who travel around with a basketball team for a year and tell all the stories about what happened. Um, I will eat those things up all day long, every day for the rest of my life. And this book um, is, you know, it's really in-depth and goes into all the personalities. And it, it, you know, talks about, you know, the finances of the baseball team and politics of a coliseum and all kinds of crap. It's a book that absolutely no one else will ever find interesting other than me, but I absolutely loved it. Champagne and Barbona. Yes. I don't think you should feel that's not that guilty of a guilty pleasure. I'm getting way more into sports writing and sports in general as I'm aging, and I'm not really sure what that's about, except that it contains so much drama with its own dumb, pointless little world, uh, you know, that it's fun. It's great. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, well, I know what it is. Like, I I invest a lot of emotional time in the sports teams that I like. And so I have this sort of outsized response to their success or their failure, to which Wendy is always like, do you think right now the Golden State Warriors are upset that you can't figure out how to get out of this scene? I was like, no, but (laughs) that doesn't matter. I'm invested in them. Um, And so then a book will come out where you find out, you know, the story behind the performance. And I'm like, oh, I, I need to know these people. And then I realized, oh, they're just like, they're the 25 year old dudes who if they knew me when I was 25 would have hated me and (laughs) and would have mocked me for being unathletic and yet I am fascinated by everything that they do and and 
stunned to find out that they're not great people because you know they're just people so you know they're they're as narcissistic as i am so they're clearly not great people um but so it it's sort of like a weird thing where i i have to it, it's not unlike when like when we read a book and then we start googling to find out what the truth is behind things yeah. so like i want I, to find out what the truth is behind my favorite baseball player i just had this experience when i went and saw um my one of my favorite relatively recent artist is the tallest man on earth um whose real name i actually don't know but it's it's one guy uh, and his music is amazing he's sort of in the bob dylan mm-hmm. sound mold but wonderful guitar player and just a amazing songwriter and really cool sounding voice and uh, all these years i've been listening to him i mean the last like four years i've been listening to him nonstop. and then he just came out with a new album so I found out he was playing in LA and I, I haven't been to a concert forever. You know, obviously we had a kid. And so we went to a, this concert. I was so excited. And this guy came out on stage and he was so not what I had imagined. Um, he, he was like this really good looking sort of hipster elf, like this little guy wearing like skinny black jeans and like literally elf shoes, like they were these leather. And he was so much more performative than I thought. Like, in my mind, it was like a guy and his guitar. You know, it was like this sort of... I had this Bob Dylan rockist preconception of, like, this soulful, like... But... Because he sounds like that. But he's actually, like, dancing around the stage and he's doing all this dramatic, like, flinging his guitar pick after every song. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> and, and Alex and I, my wife and I, are sitting there going, how do we reconcile, like, years of loving this music with this, like, performance that just doesn't quite feel as authentic as... And then it became this huge debate between the two of us, or not between the two of us, but we were just having this discussion coming back. Like, was that authentic? You know, like, how do you, does Mick Jagger have to jump around the stage in order yes. to make this? Right. There, there's something authentic about that or, or is it performative? And the, the, we were having this, like, this question about, like, is this guy, like, because it, it felt jarring for us. But is that because we walked into the concert expecting it to be this like man sitting on a stool playing his acoustic guitar and like wailing, and right. instead it was like a rock show where he wanted to make <laughs> a show out of it, and it was hard to like begrudge him that because that's probably why his concerts are sold out, right? Like he makes a spectacle out of going to see him. I, it was just a weird disjunction between like my expectations of who this person was going to be and who he was presenting himself to be. Which, but then you you're also putting it you're also impressing your own emotions from experiencing his music on what you imagine he'll be like in real life because right. you're not seeing it. Right. So right. if you're just sitting in your house and he is the background soundtrack of your daily life and you're in a quiet meditative spot and he's singing and strumming his guitar, right. He's he's not a person. He's he is an emotional experience. He's um, right. he's like in a He's aphasia. a disembodied voice. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's <laughs> this crazy yeah. It's, and then you yeah. see him in real life, and he's maybe he's got like you know he's got a zit, and you're like, oh, he 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 gets dirt in his pores. Well, no, too. actually, I would I would prefer the zit. Like I want the dirt in the pores. What instead, what I got was like a very you know over the top sort of presentational person, and that right. was, and, and it was like he was you know it was like designer clothing that he had you know had made. It was more like I. You know, I mean, a lot of people go to concerts because they want what, like, somebody like Beyonce delivers or Madonna, right. you know, a, a show. Like, and that's a, what a most people want. But I, I'm not that kind of music listener. Like, I listen to more sort of 
in the raucous tradition, like a band. I'm looking for like some sort of musical experience where they're creating something spontaneously, hopefully as spontaneous as possible, where the musicians are communicating or the one person that's, if it's a solo performance, where they're doing something they've never tried before, they're pushing themselves a little bit. And there was an element of that. Like musically, it was amazing. You know, and his guitar playing was so virtuosic that you could, it was undeniable that, that he was performing musically on like a higher level but he was adding this other level of you know the way he was dressed and the way he was moving it just felt very i, I don't know to, to my wife alex it felt very calculated and affected and to mm. me i was like trying to i still haven't come to terms with whether but you know I, definitely now i listen to it and i'm like can i can i listen to this <laughs> yeah, the same way and i can i totally can because well, the music is still so damn good and his right. new album's amazing for anybody but, who wants to to listen to it it's great but anyway I, sorry that i was have to say though writer writer you have so many stories of being disillusioned by musicians i feel like you've had this experience <laughs> oh a lot of times right. and, but here's the thing here's dude the what thing. if typhoon had come to your wedding and you're and they played and you're like eh. <laughs> I was so impressed with that like I that was the opposite experience they, yeah, they were, they were like, I had such these high musical expectations and then the people turned out to be even cooler than I thought was possible but so, how, how fucked up would it have been if we were like all uh, oh well that that wasn't what we were expecting <laughs> But I, this but disconnect then, is what I. Wait, what, what else? Okay. What else? So I have I have more I have a larger point here. Um, besides right. writers, <laughs> existential <laughs> angst about uh, artists <laughs> is that mus- musicians I think are in a uniquely weird position in that it's so your experience of their work is so private and yet concerts have become so ubiquitous. I mean, so many more people go to concerts than like readings or. I don't know. I don't know what the like acting equivalent would be, but you know, like to really love a, something on the WB. a musician, you're loving them in both a really <laughs> private and a really showy experience. So I think it's right. got to be so common. Like I really want to see Lauren Hill. Um, she's one of my favorites of all time, but you know, I just like I don't know how her voice is held up. I don't know. Like I'm kind of out of touch with her now, um, but she just started performing again, and I'm just. I, I think I probably ultimately won't go see her because I don't. I'm actively avoiding the experience that you're mm-hmm. describing, writer. Right. And I don't think she would be disillusioning in the way that you're describing. But there's like a million ways for musicians to disappoint their fans in concert. I think becoming <laughs> famous has to be one of the most difficult things for any kind of independent artist, right? Right. You know what though? Well, I well, saw I saw my all-time favorite band in concert last month and i was worried that they're going to be horrible and it was going to ruin my life Who's and i saw them and they were amazing the replacements uh, yeah. oh wow they were good awesome they were absolutely amazing and it maybe it's because they're clean and sober now and then the person who was really fucked up is dead um and so they replaced him with someone who could play better and i mean it was just it, like it was two and a half hours of awesome and i left and i was I might have cried a little during the concert. I felt like I wanted to cry after the concert. I felt mm-hmm. closer to them. I've started fan fiction pages where I write about the people I met at the concert. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, there's so I love Bruce Springsteen in concert as bit. Like I would recommend that to anyone, even if you've never heard heard it. But it's just always such a risk. 
you know? And I was just talking about this with someone else. It's also really fun to go to concerts where you don't really know the person, and then that's your discovery of them. Like, I saw... um, And Ryder, I remember you telling me you guys saw Nora Jones before she was famous. Um, And I saw Regina Spector. A friend, like, dragged me along to this thing, and it was way before Regina Spector was really popular. And I saw her, and I was like, this crazy lady is amazing and i you know i've loved her ever since hmm. but yeah it's tough okay well i've got a book this is gonna be a long episode I know. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh i just came back from book expo america as i was discussing with todd which is this big book publishing event and um i got a lot of advanced copies so you guys won't be able to get this yet but you could be excited about it um, so I went through my stacks here. That was the shelf I picked. That was my personal cheat this time. Um, so what I landed on is something I'm actually really psyched about, which is a graphic novel by Brian Selznick, who wrote Hugo. Um, did you guys, or the book that became Hugo, it had a, a longer title. Um, but it's about, you know, the beginning of cinema and a boy who lives in a Parisian train station and all that good stuff. So his next book is called The Marvels, and it's... Really beautiful. I'll show it to you guys pointlessly so that the listeners can hear. Um, and what's cool about it is that it's it's huge. And the first, I'm going to say, like, 300 to 400 pages are all sketch drawings. Um, just kind of racing through this family's history. And then, and I have not gotten to this part yet, um, and then it turns into a novel. It picks up in the middle where the where the drawings leave off and then I can I can tell by looking at it that it's going to go back to drawings about uh 90% of the way through so (laughs) I was I had it with me and uh I was reading through it really fast but then I, I became overcome by the guilt of uh how fast I was reading what it obviously must have taken Brian Selznick like five to ten years to draw. So, <laughs> I was just kind of like speed reading these amazing sketches. Right. And, and then I forced myself to Guilt stop because I, I felt really bad. Um, but hopefully the, the writing portion is good. Um, I didn't read his other book. I don't know if you guys did. No. Um, and I'm sure he's done many more. But it, it looks really beautiful. It's about a shipwreck and the theater and all kinds of things that I love. It starts in... Uh, let's see, in 1766, and then it goes all the way through the 90s, the 1990s. So, um... Wow. I'm curious, should be now that, like, digital really cool. books are, you know, kind of becoming standard, um, how, how much we're gonna see... They are not, really? actually. Is that true? Digital books are not becoming... It, the Kindle sales and the, the sale of tablets has plummeted in the last couple of the years. The tablets, but the actual books themselves are, like... Ebooks still are outsold by print wow. books. Okay, well, I was I, I was just going to say because you know what I, that book made you know, the idea of transitioning from illustrations to reading just made me think you know how when are we going to get to the point where you are basically reading a, a, a or having a reading experience that involves video or hyperlinks you know I mean it's something that everyone's been talking about for you know whatever since William Gibson in the eighties. And I just wonder now, are we gonna are we gonna get to that point now that everyone's carrying around a Kindle where you can go from like a visual story to a text based story to you know like that, that to a music based story? Like we haven't, 
you know, we've talked about the atavist did some attempts at that, but I feel mm -hmm. like the atavist still just basically succeeds as great journalism. Primarily the interactivity right. factor was not what made it, what makes it great. Um, and so I, I just, I don't know, like, I'm curious if that's going to actually happen if 10 years from now, but what you're saying is that my feeling is like, I'm sure that on the technological side and even on the publishing side or the distributor side, a lot of people are really eager for that to happen. But what it's going to take is people of Brian Selznick's quality and creativity and thoughtfulness to make that transition. When the artists make the transition or new artists who have kind of grown up with this as an option in their mind are creating that work, you know, then it'll get really good. But I also think there has to be a demand for it. So, you know, like films got sound because people wanted to hear it, <laughs> you know, right. books don't necessarily need sound because you're providing it in your head. It, you know, it, it, I, I find I find those things distracting, you know, the uh, like the if there's if there's a music, if there's a song like in a text link in an essay or something, and I go and click it and it takes me to YouTube and plays a song or something. I'm more likely to then be like, oh, you know what? I wonder if there's any new Jason Isbell concert footage and then just never go back to what I'm reading. Right. It know? actually is, is distracting your focus as, instead right. of attenuating it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think TV and movies exist and books are books don't need to provide the same thing. I don't know. I mean, that might just be my my obvious personal bias against having pictures and books because I can fucking read now. Well, uh, well. Now being so post the age of what? Eight? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks good, and Todd won't be reading it because it's, I like it. Has I like graphic novels. You guys have taught me to love graphic novels. I'm just saying, like, I, I don't, I don't need pictures in a book that's not a graphic novel. Right. <laughs> you don't it's need different... like. It, yeah, you don't need, like, the house was yellow, and then, like, a little picture of a yellow house. Right. I yes. <laughs> when things are... Like, I get are... it. I know it. I know what house and yellow are. Right. <laughs> I think you are making a good point, though, that uh, actually gets to what I really like about this graphic novel, which is that in order to answer writer's question, like, nothing can be redundant. It has to feel like a revelation every time you're switching mediums and there has to be a reason. Mm -hmm. It can't just be like, this technology is awesome. Let's do this. Um, so like, I'm hoping that when this book turns from pictures to novel, that it will feel necessary. I, I am really impressed by how um, Selznick is able to create a sense of, and by the way, when I say that this is a graphic novel, I mean, the first 400 pages have no words at all. It's just oh, pictures. Wow. Um, oh, wow. yeah. And even with that, Oh, that's really interesting. It, okay. it creates a huge amount of surprise and emotion. And I mean, we all know visual art can be very emotional, but there's some big like plot revelations that are, you know, told after you've been following this for hundreds of pages, which is just a time passing without that being told in any, you know, any verbal way. You know what I mean? So it's really, really interesting. Um, so I think people will really like it when it comes out. But for now, I have it and you don't. So sorry. Sorry, suckers. <laughs>
Okay, everyone, we are back. Um, we are back with an essay collection called The Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson. Um, I'm going to lead us through this, but um, I think this is a writer who's new to all three of us. Is that true, guys? Yeah. You guys ever heard of her before? Um, I had read some of her stuff before, and she writes the New York Times Book Review. Um, but I, I didn't have anything more than a passing knowledge of her. I, I didn't know about her novel, The Gin Closet, um, before reading this book. Um, and I read this yeah. book about a year ago now, I think it was. I might have read a review copy of it. Uh, um, probably because it's pretty new. Only vaguely. <laughs> uh, it's pretty new, and um, it's got so many reviews, and uh, so many reviews, so many great reviews, just um, all over the place. The Guardian, the New York Times. Um, it feels like in the nonfiction world, so many people were talking about this book. Um, so we really wanted to read it. And it won the Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize. And um, actually, as a side note, is a big hit for Grey Wolf Press, a pretty small press, so they must be pretty excited. Um, so what this book is, uh, is an essay collection, um, certainly in the tradition of Joan Didion or John Jeremiah Sullivan or other people who we've talked about before, um, where she's taking a general... Uh, I would say the thread between these are empathy, obviously, because that's part of it, but also pain and uh, suffering. Mm -hmm. And fear. And fear. Um, and they're personal, and they're also... I mean, they they really walk around in a lot of different um, sub-genres sub of nonfiction. Personal, social, um, and then sometimes using a lot of literary criticism to um, weigh in. So um, that's our overview, and uh, what do you guys think? Any initial reactions to this book, Todd? You read it a long time ago. I'm sure you had. Yeah, so I read it. I read it when it came out. Um, so actually, I had seen her. I, I think it was at the LA Times Festival of Books in 2014. She was there, and people were talking about the book then. And I got it right after that. I've been I've been trying to think when I got it. Um, but I read the essays not um, straight through as a like in like a week um i read them one by one over time and i really um was knocked out by them um and i recommended the book to a lot of my students a lot of my nonfiction students um because i think she is doing something really unusual which is so for instance there's there's an essay in the book about um the memphis three um the the three kids who initially were convicted of killing um three other kids in Memphis, um, or not, yeah, I guess in Memphis, West yeah, Memphis. Uh, West in, 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 in the 1980s, um, and they made several movies about them, several documentaries, Paradise Lost and, uh, and whatnot. Um, but I had students read it because it's a really unusual essay in that she is writing about watching these movies. So she is writing essays about an experience she hasn't had without any firsthand interaction with the people um she's it's like an experiential essay where she never needs to leave her, leave her house and yet still is examining these big giant truths about what art does and what suffering is and what empathy is and i was sort of fascinated by how she was able to delve into this larger cultural thing that a lot of us already know about and come at it from a new experience and, and make it and make something where we we know the ending that these three were eventually kind of exonerated they were they they got out of prison at the very least um and 
and made it into a new form of art. And I, I thought that was, I thought that was really cool. Um, but more importantly, you know, it's all about me. And in the first essay, where she's talking about being a uh, medical test dummy, basically, to train doctors, it reminded me of something that I had completely forgotten about, which was when I was 13 or 14 years old, living in Walnut Creek. Um, we used to, I don't know how we got into this, but we would, we'd be volunteered to be um, like oh bodies God. at an accident scene where EMTs would have to figure out what your injuries were. <laughs> And so I, I, I'd completely forgotten about this until I read the essay, and I just remembered <laughs> laying on the ground in the parking lot of the Sun Valley Mall at like three o'clock in the morning, and my only wound was there was a blue bruising underneath my ears, and which is a sign of some brain injury, and the stupid fucking. EMT in training could not find anything wrong with me. I'm laying there freezing there for hours, and I was finally like, "Look behind my ears! Just look oh, you behind see. my ears!" That's funny. My brother was in an EMT class, and they took turns, you know, pretending to be different symptoms or different things. And my brother is an actor; has been an actor all his life, like me. But he doesn't really do it anymore. But he was in this EMT class, and they had to pl they needed somebody to play drunk. Like to come right. in intoxicated. My <laughs> brother do does incredible intox. Like he can he can close like one of his eyes halfway, and he can he just nails being drunk. And he came into the classroom, I guess, doing this drunk performance, and just blew everybody away. They were like, "Oh my god, we thought you were!" Oh my god, and like got applause at the end of his. You know, it's like he's like, I felt like I had a superpower. You know, I came in. I was here. I was just in this EMT class, but suddenly I could I could act something. Um, <laughs> He's the Olivier of, of, of EMT of drugs. <laughs> uh, you know, I but, have so I, I really liked it. I really, I really liked the essays. I thought it was a great book. Yeah, um, you know, I have a similar. Uh, okay, let me let me walk it back. Um, I I really like this book, and it's definitely falling for me. And you guys know me and my writing really well, as well as my life. Right in the like, I wish I had written this book category, um, because so mm -hmm. many of these I thought that might essays, be your experience. What's that? Yeah. I said I thought that might be your experience. I mean, not only is the writing similar to mine, but um, although she's obviously incredibly skilled, and that was just a really pompous thing to say, but like stylistically, we obviously <laughs> like the same things. Um, right. But, you know, so many of these, she just lives like a 50 times more extreme version of so many things that I do so i i do this i don't do it for medical but I, I don't think you guys even know this but i am an actor for corporate training um so i have to like come in and people have mm -hmm. to fire me and my personal test is actually all about empathy um so that that's one and then to go into some of the other essays you know like you know i run a little she writes a I great write essay about this thing. crazy ultra marathon thing Oh, the Barkley uh, which, essay is amazing. And I got, I got obsessed with figuring out everything I could about those crazy fucking ultra. Oh, yeah. That's nuts. I mean, there's that's a whole world, amazing world. But yeah. um, to delve off of my personal life here and professional jealousy, although I don't, you know, this is a, a serious sidebar, but I don't feel a lot of professional jealousy because I just feel like if people like this book, they're just opening up an audience that might someday like, you know, what I put out there. So... Right. Good for you, Leslie. Let's be friends. Um, I like that. 
But um, but really, you know, like these essays are. She lives not near easy. you. She's a, she's a, she's getting her doctorate at Yale right now. That's not far from you. You guys could yeah, totally be friends. You guys live basically in the same city. Um. Yeah. Totally. Um. But the thing is, like, what I liked about this is that the essays are very challenging. She doesn't feel mm-hmm. a strong um sense of making them easy or simple. And in fact, one of my favorite ones is really short. Um, It's the morphology of the hit where she takes Mm -hmm. this literary theory approach to something that happened to her in her life, but the structure of how it's supposed to go doesn't really make sense. So she rearranges and like leaves out some of the part of a normal hero's journey. And I just thought that was really fascinating. And that one was a favorite of mine. What'd you think, Ryder? Well, that's funny. You guys have picked out the two least favorite essays for me uh, <laughs> as your favorites. That's funny. I, I really did love the book, and I, I think she is an incredible writer and an incredible thinker. And um, I I wish I had experienced this the way Todd had. I, I, I didn't like reading it as a book all the way through. So I recommend somebody pick it up, read an essay, put it back down on, on the to-read shelf, and, and then pick it up. Because I got a little exhausted by... Yeah. Um, the, I, I don't know what, I mean, it, I've, I've felt this way about a lot of essay collections, actually. It's, it's clear that somebody is an incredible thinker and, you know, and they, they live an interesting life. And, and like, I remember feeling this way about Jonathan Franzen too, when I read his essay collection, How to Be Alone. It was like, yeah. every time I had encountered an essay of his in a magazine or something, I was obsessed with it. And I was really into it. I thought it was really smartly written. But when I had read three of them in a row, I got so sick of him as a person and yeah. I didn't get as sick of her as a person, but I did get, there was a, there was a certain level of, um, um, I guess I started to, I, I, I don't actually think this by the end, but it did start to feel a little narcissistic. It did start to feel like, how do I insert myself into this ultra runner marathon situation? How do I insert myself into this? And I know that that's part of the essay experience and that's and and i i on the flip side i didn't want to just read dry reporting i'm obviously coming to it and 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 it wasn't just memoir so i like the idea of blending those two things which she does consistently but there was something there was something limited about her point of view and 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 it it finally came to me in in a moment when she was talking about um, the, the, there's one essay where she goes to visit a man in prison who she had right. mentioned in an earlier essay and then she goes to visit him in prison and she's discussing why he's in prison and it turns out he's in prison because some IRS investigator had seen a documentary about him and decided to delve into this guy's life and she discusses the IRS officer's interest in this man's life and compares it to her interest in this man's life and she says something to the effect of you know why what it what it means to be an author and um here i'll just i'll just quote it it's um it's on page 134 nordlander is the name of the irs investigator i've tried to understand nordlander's curiosity as vocational instinct perhaps he wonders how strangers pay their taxes the same way i wonder how strangers get along with their mothers or what secrets they keep from their spouses and that sort of investigative, authorial um, curiosity is what drives these essays. You know, there's always an mm-hmm. I saying, I wonder about this, or why do people do this? And that I, um, she's very self-reflexive. She's constantly questioning herself and questioning her own feelings about these things. And 
sometimes that just just got to me. And and I don't know if that's really her fault. I think it's just an exhaustion with reading a book written from this constantly this constantly self-questioning eye. It's like, yeah, yeah, we get it. You you don't understand. You're conflicted about it. We get it. We get that you, you know, and and especially since the book opens with the empathy exams, the the first essay is about her being so it's very self-reflexive and about the question of empathy. And I guess I just got tired of that question. I just kind of wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted her to express how she feels about something unabashedly and wholeheartedly and say, this thing sucks or these people are horrible or this person's great. And instead she never is willing to take a complete stance on something because she wants Be- to retain an intellectual imperviousness by being vague and and, and ambiguous. I don't don't think that's it. I think think she doesn't do that because she is attempting to feel empathy for every single person. She is putting herself in the position in each essay to imagine herself in the shoes right. of Right, so I guess person. it's feel Sisyphean when you're reading that because every essay begins with the, the desire and then the failure of that desire to achieve that. And so she's left in this sort of, which is, a, I mean, that, that, that is an accomplishment. That's, I, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I, I think she's such an intelligent person and such a great writer, but it was exhausting for me to, to be going through this journey. And, and, and I, I kind of wanted to like grab her and be like, just, just, like, but that's like, that's the point, right? Like, I get, we're I get supposed what you're to saying. feel this ambiguity. Um, I mean, I think so I, I think end... it's exhaustion of over. Uh, I think it's like I said, it's it's reading them in, in one sitting. You know, I essentially read this right. in in the last week, so it's it's the fact that I was reading them all in a row. I think that that wore me down. If I had encountered any one of these individually, I would be like, oh, this is the greatest writer you know I've read in a long time. So, yeah, and I think I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I feel like this is a person and this is going to sound critical but I don't mean it to be I think it's just a point of view that all three of us are now used to this is a person who has you know been in this like writing mode this like MFA intellectual mode for a long time and you know that's just part of her style now and it provides her with a remove at the same time as like this confessional form that we're all really familiar with. So it's exhausting on its own mm-hmm. level because we've read it done badly a lot of times. Right. But also, writer, <laughs> I think you're right. I think it works really well in some essays and really not great in other ones. So, like, for example, um, another one that I really liked, and again, I think this is me agreeing with you, writer, like all the ones that I liked were towards the beginning of the book. Um, mm-hmm. But the one about the... Um, the weird syndrome where you like think things are in your skin. Oh yeah. That's an incredible. So that watching her grapple with whether or not she believes. And then I thought I had that. I'm just going to (laughs) say after, after I read that, I'm like, I do feel itchy. But I think in that case, watching her grapple with whether or not she believes them and her personal experiences related to that is so effective because we all know yeah. these people who we think are insane. However, right. in situations like the ultra marathon essay, you know, it ends with her finding out that like someone who she hadn't even cared about won the race. So she's just like, Oh, well, I guess I can't like end it basically the way I thought I could, you know, I've been spending a lot of time with journalists lately. I've been working at NPR I feel like she should have gone back and interviewed that guy or, like, 
done more journalistic work rather than what felt to me like a little bit of a cop-out, like, well, this is an essay, so I get I just right. didn't know anything about that guy. And in that case, her personal interjections work less well. You know, like, they have yeah, to be... Too. Like, when, she sit, when yeah. she's talking about that essay about sitting in the car and watching reality TV and she's describing which what's happening in the reality TV mm-hmm. show she's watching, I'm like, I don't care. Like, this is a yeah. chance to... See, see, I read that and I'm... I think... Okay, she, uh, I'm not going to, I was going to say brave, but that, it's, this is not about bravery. <laughs> um, brave is a word I, 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 that makes me crazy. Um, but she is gutsy enough to, to say in this essay, I'm not going to go back and find something interesting about this guy that I didn't find anything interesting about before. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to recreate the experience simply to give it a better ending, because that is not my particularly my particular truth you know i had no interest in this person before but then why do i care about it reading it like why i mean honestly like it besides the writerly imp- impression that you're giving which is cool like on a meta level i get it but mm-hmm. why does the average reader who's not a writer who's not interested in the trickery because of an i say because or, i think trickery, that's that's unfair but the, I, the complexity of like, I just feel like she's reaching to prove her own complexity sometimes. Like, in that moment, it was more about illustrating how she, how, like, what you're saying is, like, that sounds like an MFA writerly thing to to do. Like, that's not that impressive to your average person who wants a satisfying ending. Like, wanting a satisfying ending but, is not but a... But whole, that whole race doesn't have a satisfying ending. That's the right. thing about that race is yeah, that it said. is a mundane journey... Right that right. doesn't have oh, I see. Okay, the full right. conclusion. Right. Okay. So she's she's framed the essay in the same way that she that the race is framed, which is that you know what? You don't get the satisfying ending because no one gets the satisfying ending. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't think I like that. I get what you <laughs> I, I just don't I, like that's that. Fucking bullshit. <laughs> so Todd, I agree. I agree with you. But I also feel like where this is best is when she, and this is seriously my own, the way I've been spending the last few months of my life and really having my, like, idea of nonfiction, you know, change. But, you know, like, when she is using journalistic rigor to go after her own experiences or the experiences around her, she's picking up on such amazing details and thoughts Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's so... It's so great. And that, that essay is a tough example because most of it, she isn't in it. But there, anyone where she's doing a lot of investigation, I feel like, is more effective than, you know, some of yeah, her like, self-reflective moments. Like, I think the pain tours where she looks at, you know, these three different tours of horrible things, basically. Right. I think she really does that one well. But even in that one, you know, she, she does a trick because she writes part of it in second person. Um, it's so interesting, and... Todd. You keep picking up on my least favorite essays. Like, I hated the pain <laughs> ones. I don't understand why those are in here. Those are, to me, the most indulgent. Like, I was writing in a journal while I did stuff. I don't care. Like, I just don't care. I was like, what is the point of the... And why? what is the connective tissue here? You're supposed to make those connections for me. Like, I'm not impressed that you kept... That you you know did these kind of either cheesy or like and then the second set of pain tours really bothered me like what does frida kalo have to do with james oh i like I, yeah the the second pain tours uh essay was my my least favorite reading experience in the book i don't know it's just I, 
What did you guys think? Because for me, the, the crowning achievement in this book is In Defense of Saccharin. What did you guys think of that one? Oh, I, I thought that was great. I, I thought In Defense of Saccharin and the first essay, yeah. uh, the actual empathy exams, are I, the, the two most powerful pieces of work. I would add the, the second one about the Morgellons or whatever, the, the, oh, yeah, the disease yeah. under the skin thing. But the Defense of Saccharin to me was the most clearly like i'm going to investigate an interesting weird subject saccharin like literally the the fake sugar substitute but then also the concept of saccharin uh, you know as a, a, a sentimentality or overindulgence mm-hmm. of sentimentality that was brilliant because there i i felt like there was a clear entry point right a clear question or issue and then there were so many facets of this issue that she was able to connect them all and go in a million different directions and you just saw the breadth of her intelligence and experience and willingness to investigate these things plus she did bring in all this personal stuff um effectively that to me was the most sort of um the just the the best accomplishment of like her her talents you know the best use of her talents sort of coming together um whereas like the pain tours one felt fragmentary for the sake of being fragmentary and I honestly I don't think they belong in this collection except that you know pain obviously associates with it and then I thought the final essay was really good too um, because it brings it, the final essay is, is called oops I'm sorry the unified theory um, of female pain thing. yeah, yeah unified. Un- grand unified theory of female pain because I was throughout the book thinking often about how she relates to her own body and you know because it seems like a lot of the returning themes of this book are the language of the body versus actual language or or trying to read your own feelings or your your body as opposed to um uh like unconscious communication versus conscious communication so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of discussion about like how people are feeling something but whether that thing is real or how to interpret what another person says is happening to their body like the whole question of empathy and i thought all of that stuff really came together in the final in the final essay and then added this you know other element of her own identity as a as a woman and how you know that plays into her thinking about her body and and like bringing in Stephen King's Carrie really wonderfully, mm-hmm. and I don't. It, so yeah, I thought there was two, basically in terms of it as an essay collection's brilliant, you know, placements of essays, and they are actually the ones you like, writers. So that's interesting. So what I felt reading this is like, okay, you know, like she's writing about herself, but there seems to be some kind of remove or whatever. And so the the saccharine piece comes, you know, like three quarters of the way through, and that's her, you know, at least in part grappling with her own like fear of emotion, and and so that I think works really well to answer some of these questions that we're raising of, you know, like is she too personal? Is she not personal enough? What are our judgments on that? And then she's basically like coming down on that with the saccharine essay, and then the female <laughs> right. pain is the same thing, is saying, you know. Basically, it's answering the question, like, have I portrayed too many wounded women, including myself, in my Mm. own writing? And really grappling with that question, I mean, I don't know. I've experienced that that, that essay so good, and it's so personal to me, and I, I do feel like, you know, of all the women that I've known in my own experiences with pain and some of these different kinds of, you know, wounds... 
was just, I mean, I think people would love this essay if they can get through the the book, which is very challenging. I actually think the last essay is the easiest and the most, you know, mm-hmm. would easily be the most popular. I can see it being passed around to a lot of people I know. But, right. I mean, mm-hmm. with its pop culture references, it's like easy structure um, and all that good stuff. But, I mean, yeah, to ask you know, the question... You know what's weird? What's weird? What's weird is... Um, <laughs> So at the conclusion of that, I mean, it does it asks these big questions, and then you realize that you have taken entertainment from the most profound suffering of Leslie Jamison's life. Mm-hmm. You know, so in the empathy exam, the first essay, you learn both of her abortion and uh, the breakup of a relationship um, and her heart condition. And I, in the first essay, do you also find out that she was an alcoholic? I think you do. Um, you know that she's drinking a lot. Like, it's heavily implied. Yeah. So, but but at any rate, by the time you get to the saccharin essay, you know that she has had some pretty fucked up things happen. You know, she's been beaten and mugged on the streets of Nicaragua, all this stuff. And if you're compelled by it, you're entertained by it. Right. Um, and and then you're asked by the conclusion to ask yourself why you find this woman's pain entertaining i know <laughs> it's really cool it's it's turning it's the a, empathy that you've yeah. been extending her right back on to you in a really and, and, a, and asking why you need this yeah but i mean the answer is simple i guess is that we read other people's suffering to make our own suffering understandable that we're not alone in the world which is empathy um you know but it it, it like it it calls into question you know, I, I was thinking about this in relationship, oddly enough, to that dreadful book Stephen Graham Jones made us read, uh, The Girl Next Door or whatever. Oh, yeah. Is that what it was called? Yes. Where, you know, we watch for 350 pages this girl get brutalized over and over and over again for 350 horrible fucking pages. And it's entertainment. You know, it's a book that we read to escape our own lives. And here we've read about Leslie Jameson's own life and the sadness that she has found. And it's to and we read it to escape our own life too but her life was real it's 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 just a it's just a it's a very strange experience well and that's so <laughs> yeah. interesting because it's definitely doing what you're describing Todd but also and then for me as a woman one of the questions that's really put forth that is just really arresting is have we written too much about wounded women how by by constantly portraying women's pain are we portraying women as weaker or you know there to be wounded basically and that's so i mean like that's a question and this is how she ends the essay but that's a question that will go on like (laughs) till the end of time because you know just because sylvia plath did it really well or so and so did it really well um doesn't mean that each new woman in the world won't feel wounded you know in new ways or in old ways and i just i do not want to get into this on this podcast but i'm very interested and delighted that we've read this in the same time frame as the game of thrones plot point um i don't know if you've been watching Ryder, but one of the major characters is like brutally raped and it's just been a huge 
uh, uproar that I feel like has no substance of what people are actually talking about. They're just generally upset. And to them, I would, to, to the public, I would give them this essay because, you know, it's presenting a complex, it's presenting a grand unified theory of female pain. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than just feeling outrage over individual incidents. You know what's also interesting is if you if you read if you read this book back to back with the Department of Speculation by Jenny Ophel, two things would happen. You'd want to kill yourself. Right. Number one. But number two, it's it's they're sort of similar books. One is fiction, obviously, one is nonfiction. But they're they're talking about a lot of the same stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of the same things that I think are an undercurrent or it's not even an undercurrent it's it's a top current of American culture right now which is um, the victimization of women generally and how we react to the victimization of women well, how women how, we react, react. How, how women themselves react to their own victimization right. or their own status positioning themselves as victims as power yeah it, yeah yeah it's it's a it's a very in, I mean obviously we are in a, a a place in society where this is a conversation that we're having because you know there's for instance uh, a portion of the american political realm that does not care about women <laughs> and then there's a portion that does <laughs> and i'm not gonna say which is which let you guys decide that in 2016 um <laughs> but it this book and that book sort of starkly show um in my mind they're connected this bigger question of the treatment of women how we deal with their pain how it's marginalized or how it isn't um dealt with even um and i you know it it sort of makes me feel like it's an exciting time to be looking at these things and talking about things these things because for so long they were left on the back burner um you know but it's funny to me that you would i i get why you would unite those books and they definitely belong (laughs) On the same shelf. But to me, the experience, I know I said this during the other one, like, this is not surprising information to me or, like, to my female (laughs) friends. Like, I'm not like, oh, my God, this is a turning point. I'm like, oh, well, she's writing about, you know, what so many people that I know are experiencing. So it's so, that's, it's great. Good for you well, guys I think for what, reading it. What is, it, what is a turning point, though? Like, I feel like pop, popular culture is picking up on... Yes. You know, I mean, like, I would say the TV show Girls, Inside Amy Schumer, you know, uh, Mad Men, the rape on Game of Thrones. Like, there's, like, women as, as central characters and women as authors um, and still being positioned as victims or commenting on their position as victims. That is entering the mainstream in such a a great way um you know in comedic ways in tragic ways in essay form so we are at a at a, at a good time uh to have those discussions i believe it was adam yak of the beastie boys who once said i gotta say a little something that's long overdue the disrespect to women has got to be through to all the ladies the sisters the wives and friends i got nothing but love and respect to the end that was in sure shot <laughs> Um, uh, that well, was in 1990-something. <laughs> well, I think what uh, Alanis would say to that is, you ought to know, Todd. You should have known this <laughs> all along. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and 
that's going to do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we read Tiger Man, a novel by Nick Harkaway. Literary Disco is edited, produced, and saved every week by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. Magno.